In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today we're joined to talk about the Tuesday primary election uh, by AJC Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell. And we're going to go over everything, but let's start with what is the biggest story that's eclipsed the Senate races and eclipsed the House races and the legislative races, and that is all the voting issues that Georgia faced. Tia, you were, you were following from afar in Washington, um, but certainly the national media jumped all over this, and, and, and you were covering it as well. Uh, what did you make of it? I mean, it's clear, number one, that in Georgia, there really is no good excuse for what happened on Election Day. You know, there are people who are trying to um, lay blame. Was it the county? Was it the state? Was it the equipment? Was it the training? Was it the lack of workers? Was it COVID-19? And we may never have a clear answer, but I think everyone can agree that it was a hot mess and it's something that has made the state a national laughing stock. You know, even Republicans are using the phrase that we had on the stripped across the top of the front page in the AJC today, and that was meltdown. Um, and that's what it was. And as someone who was out in the field, along with dozens of AJC reporters, we had a whole giant team out trying to do our very best to, to bring our listeners and readers the story of what was happening. Um, you know, I, I witnessed firsthand um, a, a debacle. Um, I went to a polling site where it wasn't just that lines were moving slow. They weren't moving at all because the elections, the election, the new voting equipment wouldn't work, completely malfunctioned. Um, the three or four poll workers in this precinct didn't know how to get it started, had begged for help, and had already run through the 20 or so provisional ballots that they had at their disposal. Um, meanwhile, there was a line stretched outside the building of people who were literally waiting two, three hours without anything even moving. Uh, I talked to a woman who was 80 years old at the beginning, at the front of the line, who, who talked about how, what a travesty this was. Uh, other people who said this was a clear sign of voter suppression, whether or not it was intentional, it, that's what it was. And, you know, it reminded me that in these types of votes, we, we always talk to people who say they're going to stick it out and they give these inspirational quotes about how, how much their vote matters. But it's harder to pin down all the people who don't vote because they see those long lines because they can't skip work or they have to pick up their kids or they have other pressing obligations and they can't stay around for four hours or five hours or, or in some cases um, after midnight uh, to, to cast their ballots. 
Right. And, and, and that's the thing. I think the perception of the state, either because of just oversight or some would say, you know, there are going to be people who accuse the state of something more sinister. So whether it is a deeper kind of active suppression or whether it's just, you know, people not fully implementing things to, you know, a high level, the outcome is still the same, which is there may have been people and we'll never know how many who who did not vote yesterday because the system did not work well for them. Yeah. And that's sort of the heart of the issue. There's a lot of there's a lot of finger pointing and blame game that goes on. And look, we're used to this. Um, this has happened for, for a long time in, in Georgia. Whenever there's elections problem, um, the state and the county officials um, point fingers at each other. And it's partly, I get it why, because the state is in charge of overseeing the elections while local officials are actually administering them. So it's, it's confusing. It's confusing for voters. It's confusing for officials sometimes. But the bottom line is there is a clear call um, for something to be done to, to fix um, and to fix this scenario, lawmakers are going back into session in just a few days. Um, there will probably be court action between now and November. <laughs> I expect it pretty soon. And there's also the power that Brad Raffensperger, Secretary of State, has to unilaterally make some decisions, such as expanding mail-in votes um, to keep more people, uh, to, to allow more people to, to vote from home. Um, so there's any number of remedies we, we have to I'll just say, can we just talk about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like, for example, how easy would it be to change the rules to allow counties to count absentee ballots as they come in? Of course, you don't release the results, but why not go ahead and count them so that as soon as it's time, you click a button and the results are posted as opposed to holding on to the ballots and then having to count them after the fact? What about making the form scannable, you know, so that it looks like there's a lot of counting by hand going on today. We know that's a that's a task that is going to be slow and very susceptible to human error. Why not make the absentee ballots scannable to count them? Like, are those things that are going to require the General Assembly or are those things that the secretary, the secretary of state could do? Um, pretty easily. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Some of it is enforced just by executive action. You And you, you covered politics for a long time in, in Florida before joining the AJC. Um, obviously, Florida has, has, has had its issues, and many of them. Um, but what, what, what do you think Georgia could learn from Florida's approach now? So I was a college student during Bush v. Gore, and the hanging chads were old voting machines where you punched a hole in your ballot to indicate who you supported. But that was down in South Florida where I voted in Tallahassee. It was those, you know, fill in a bubble and then the machine scans in your answer. So as long as you fill in the bubble correctly, it's um, a pretty good system. And in Tallahassee, Florida, that supervisor of elections, his name is Ian Sancho, had like a national model. He's retired now, but he's considered, you know, one of the foremost experts on running good elections. He was on Twitter last night, you know, looking at Georgia and, and, and lamenting what was happening. So, you know, and I've never used a touch screen until I moved to Georgia. But I will tell you that the the again, Florida has had its own issues, mainly not necessarily with the machines as much as with some of the counting and the long lines and things like that. 
But again, it's it, it. There was consternation months ago about these new machines that Georgia went with, which were, you know, independent folks who look at voting and look at voting systems said these machines are not the most efficient. This way of voting is not the most efficient. And that seemed to bear out on Tuesday. And look, uh, that's the point I want to kind of emphasize. This this was entirely predictable. I mean, our, 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 our AJC colleague, Mark Nisi, has been reporting about these issues for months. Um, and, and not just issues with the new $104 million voting system and that you've already elaborated on, but also uh, the pandemic-related issues. Um, there are about 10% fewer uh, voting precincts because of, of consolidation and closures. There are fewer poll workers. That leads to more crowded polling precincts with, with less people to help uh, voters out with and a new system um, that a lot of voting staff are not familiar with. Um, there were missing absentee ballots and a lot of people reporting, tens of thousands of people reporting that they filled out their absentee ballot request forms and never got them, uh, never got the, the their actual ballots. Um, so although on one hand we have a record number of mail-in votes, 1.2 million um, early votes overall. So that, that, that could be seen as a smashing success. On the other hand, you can't ignore the giant other problems, uh, particularly with in-person voting, um, that made, as you said, Georgia a laughingstock around the country. Right, because people who did what they were told to do, which was attempt to get an absentee ballot, there was, you know, people who didn't get their ballots in time who made multiple requests for absentee ballots. Or, you know, we heard from Stacey Abrams who said she got an absentee ballot, but it was defective. And when she tried to get a new ballot, she couldn't get in touch with anyone. So, you know, it's even those folks who were told what to do when it came to the mail-in ballots, which I think, you know, we again, there are other states that by routine do voting by mail, and it went much smoother than what we saw in Georgia. So it does seem that those folks who are in charge of uh, running elections in Georgia, um, there are many examples of them not following best practices, not necessarily following models set in other places that's doing it well. And I think that begs the question, why? Why were certain vendors selected? Why were certain systems um, and, and ways of doing voting selected? And what was the rationale? Yeah. And look, um, we're hearing from a lot of Republicans who, and, and others who were pointing out that the vast majority of places in Georgia, there weren't issues. Um, you know, and, and one of the numbers being bandied about is 150 counties of the 159, there weren't issues. But that also doesn't take away from the fact that in nine of those counties, including what seems to be a, a majority of predominantly African-American areas. This wasn't happening uh, as much in majority white and more affluent areas. Uh, this was happening in precincts, in diverse precincts in central DeKalb and in south DeKalb and south Fulton. And so much to the point that that in early Yes, early Tuesday morning, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Bottoms, Keisha Lance Bottoms, questioned why, again, Fulton County seemed to be having the biggest issues in predominantly black areas and whether or not it's intentional. And I, I haven't found many people, who, many officials who will say that's intentional, but either way, it has the effect of disenfranchising voters. Right. So even, you know, it's not for us here to assess intent and 
those investigations may never be able to assess intent, but we know the outcome. And so even if we just look at what we saw, um, you had far fewer complaints out of North DeKalb and North Fulton, which we know is predominantly white parts of those counties, whereas South DeKalb and South Fulton had more of the problems, and those are predominantly black parts of those counties. And so, like you said, the the perception, you always hear the phrase perception is reality. The perception is that there was not equal support for elections yesterday across those counties, that there was a divide. Yeah. yeah. And and look, what it's led to, too, is, is more confusion about election results. Um, this was not a clean election where we had most results by seven or, you know, not seven, but eight or nine or 10 p.m. This was an election where we waited late into the night and early, early Wednesday morning. And we're still not sure of the outcomes of, of the biggest premier race on the ticket. And that's the Senate Democratic primary. Um, John Ossoff is clearly either in the runoff or he's the outright victor. But we're not sure which one yet because um, he's at about 49 percent of the vote. Um, he needs a majority. So he needs 50 plus one to avoid a runoff against either Teresa Tomlinson or Sarah Riggs Amico. But as it stands right now, um, he says they, he, he recently said that there are tens of hundreds of thousands, in his words, of absentee ballots still outstanding. Um, our colleague Mark Nisi um, doesn't have an exact number on how, many, how much are outstanding because of, of the peculiarities of Georgia's voting system. But either way, there's clearly still droves of votes that are outstanding. And he is tripling up his nearest competitor, uh, Teresa Tomlinson. She has about 15% of the vote. Um, but it's still uncertain. And he's saying, much like um, Stacey Abrams said two years ago that they should wait till every vote is count- counted um, to assess whether or not he's headed to a runoff or whether he's the Democratic nominee against David Perdue. Right. And, and you know, that's hard. I, I don't fault him at all for wanting to wait. Um, but that's hard, number one, because we're used to having results much sooner. And, you know, I think people are going to be people are ready to turn the page, especially because there are other races that have already turned the page. You know, if you look at Handel versus McBath, that race is already on and popping in high gear, you know, and there are other races we see that folks are already moving on, whether it's to the runoff or whether it's to the general election. And meanwhile, we have the closer races, uh, particularly that Democratic U.S. Senate primary, that are kind of in standstill without any end in mind. So again, to me, that begs the question, even if state law said you couldn't count the absentee ballots, we were told that counties could prepare them ahead of time. So how do counties not have an exact number? You know, and maybe that's because all the ballots were turned in at the last day. I don't know. It's just so many questions there. And I feel like, you know, I guess part of me is wondering if and when we'll ever get straight answers out of what happened today and where the problems lie. Yeah, it certainly makes our jobs a lot more um, interesting when we don't have clear results. And we're, we're, we're sitting here on Wednesday afternoon 
And we might have them, you know, in another hour. We might have them in another few days. Uh, or it might be as long as Stacey Abrams where it was, it was, it was 10 days before um, we had at least a definitive answer to the governor's race. Um, but clearly, uh, Republicans are rooting for a runoff between Ossoff and Tomlinson. And she had a pretty um, gutting remark today, um, even though she's only about 10,000 votes ahead of Sarah Riggs Amico at this moment. And she has about 15 percent of the vote. She just she she just laced into to John Ossoff. Um, I'll pull up the quote that she said. She declared herself in the runoff. She sent a press release trumpeting a head-to-head matchup between a proven leader and a failed repeat candidate who can't break 50%. So it's pretty um, <laughs> pretty harsh words for a candidate who logged only about 15% of the vote and was trounced in every part of the state except the region surrounding her Columbus base. Um, but you know that's just the kind of style she's had this entire race. She has not been bashful at all about slicing into to Ossoff and questioning whether or not he can actually defeat David Perdue. Right, and and that also indicates, you know, in her mind, she's in the runoff because right now she's the second place person. But I'm sure Sarah Riggs Amico is somewhere with her fingers crossed, hoping that the more counting that's done, that that race for a second place against Ossoff tightens up. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and I, I've heard from many Democrats today, um, some of her, some her supporters and some who are neutral in the race and some who are backing other candidates who are still stunned at the, um, <laughs> I don't know what word to call it, but, but the, uh, just, just how forceful her rebuke of Ossoff is. Um, again, someone who is tripled by, by John Ossoff. Uh, it also put, puts to rest questions about whether or not, if she is in a runoff, whether or not she will, um, she'll continue the race because there's, there's some scattered talk about whether or not she would step out and let Democrats unify around John Ossoff. She's, she's given no indication. I haven't asked that campaign yet because, um, because frankly, I haven't gotten any indication that she would. And this statement kind of says it all. You're not thinking about stepping out of a race if you're calling someone a failed candidate who can't beat David Perdue. Right. I did think about that though, because if, John Ossoff has to spend the next two months not only spending energy and time ensuring he can make it to the general election, but spending money on the general election. I mean, on the runoff. Meanwhile, David Perdue, who already has a lot more money in the bank, gets to spend the next two months increasing the amount of money he has in the bank. You know, I don't think that bodes well for what already is a tough thing for Democrats to try to unseat a Republican incumbent in a statewide race in Georgia. So I think it, of course, would serve Democrats well, the the body of Democrats, those who want Democrats to win that race. It would serve them well not to have a runoff. But again, to your point, I don't know if anyone would be able to convince, you know, Teresa Tomlinson to walk away. Yeah, I mean, look, it's one of those things, if only party leaders, you know, I'm sure that Nakima Williams or DuBose Porter or, or other 
party um, party bigwigs wish they had the sort of power <laughs> that, uh, to do that. But because the same thing in in the other Senate race, um, I mean, if Democrat, if National Democrats had their wish, then Matt Lieberman and Ed Tarver would go ahead and bow out of that special election against Kelly Leffler and leave it to Raphael Warnock because that's another race that's going to go to a runoff in January for sure. And Democrats might have their best chance of winning it in November, not in January, because traditionally Democrats in Georgia do very poorly in general election runoffs um, uh, against Republicans. Republicans have won just about every one of them over the last uh, 15 or so years. So um, tough haul for 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 Democrats in that sort of race. And uh, it'll be if there is a runoff. and, you know, by the time you're listening to this, there might not be. We might we might know that there's not going to be one. But if there is going to be one, it's certainly going to be a bruising uh, affair because um, Ossoff largely ignored Tomlinson's attacks throughout because he's the front runner and he didn't need to. But in this case, he doesn't want to leave anything to chance. He knows the history of runoffs. It is not uncommon for someone in Georgia who finishes second and in, in a in a you know in a first round to beat to win in a runoff and you you don't need to look any further than last the the midterm from Casey Cagle and Brian Kemp where Brian Kemp finished far behind Casey Cagle Casey Cagle all the talk was well he won an outright victory well he didn't he he got low forties Kemp was in his twenties and Kemp ended up routing him. Because a lot of things can happen in nine weeks. And in this case, it was a secretly recorded tape and it was a President Donald Trump endorsement. And those two things combine to give Brian Kemp an overwhelming victory. And with Ossoff, there's no guarantees that he'll maintain his tremendous financial edge and his edge in name recognition in nine more weeks. Right. And I think, you know, you never know what's possible. You never know what might come up in nine weeks to boost a candidate or damage a candidate. You don't know where public sentiment might be in nine weeks. You know, look at how much different public sentiment is just over the past month with the protesting and the the increased energy around policing and, and, and systemic racism, conversations we were not having a month ago. And so, you know, you never know what the opposition might dig up on a candidate. So again, I don't see what's what's the upside other than making Nakima Williams happy um, for Teresa Tomlinson to back down. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the it's the giving Ossoff more more or whoever the nominee is more time to raise cash because uh, David Perdue is sitting on at least nine million dollars in his last report, an enormous amount of money in a race that's going to probably shatter fundraising records. In, in Georgia. And um, and so he's coming from a position of strength. He did not face a re- Republican primary a- a opponent. So he got to kind of skate through. Um, and he's been more aggressively uh, kind of sh- taking shots at the Democrats um, by including recently questioning whether or not they back a, uh, you know, one of the scattered calls to defund police. Um, so you'll see a lot more rhetoric out of, out of him. And I'm sure starting pretty soon, some TV, some more TV ads from his campaign, because we're getting closer to November. Right. And that's the other thing. If the Democrats are in a runoff, right, and David Perdue's team of very smart advisors, seasoned advisors, know that the Democrats are going to spend too much going two months going after each other, then we might not hear as much because he knows he can save his money and not spend it for two months and let the Democrats just go after each other. 
You know, and you, you, you closely followed all the congressional races on Tuesday night as well. And there's one race in particular that I was always a skeptic of, but you, you insisted, and, and rightly so, that you give it even more attention. And that was the David Scott uh, race. He, he ended up being the only incumbent uh, House member in Georgia dragged into a runoff. Um, talk a little bit about the dynamic in that race, because you, you, you spotlighted it earlier, and you were right. So that one was interesting because... You know, on paper, David Scott wouldn't look that vulnerable. He's got a nice little chunk of money compared to challengers who had very little money. And he's a moderate Democrat. He kind of, um, you know, flies pretty low during the coronavirus pandemic. He was doing what his other colleagues were doing with the town halls and, and things like that. But what you saw Early on, he was challenged by people with some with some, you know, they had some credibility to their name and 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 they were clear that they felt that David Scott had not done enough in the 13th district, which kind of includes the south suburbs of Atlanta. And then it swings around into Cobb County. And so, you know, there there I think they had picked up on some dissatisfaction with David Scott and hope to take advantage of it. I think what surprised some people is, you know, initially they thought that Michael Owens, who's the former Democratic Party chairman in Cobb County, who happens to be of the four Democrats, including David Scott in the race, he's the only one that actually lives in the district, which, you know, it's it's a somewhat gerrymandered district. So anyways, he is not who made it to the runoff, former state representative, Keisha Sean Waits made it to the runoff. She has $875 in her account. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And David Scott has $875. And that's money that was just reported I because I for months was... there was nothing wow. reported on the Federal Elections Commission website. David Scott has 240000 Now, he wasn't spending much. David Scott is not a big campaigner. As we know, he didn't uh, debate. He didn't participate in the debate against his opponents. He wasn't spending a lot of money. I think he's used to kind of coasting to re-election every two years. Um, so now that he's in a runoff, it's going to be interesting to see if he continues his low-key approach and hoping that name recognition alone uh keeps him going because he did get what 40% of the vote compared to I think about 20% for um Keisha Sean Waits. Um but it's going to be interesting to see if she starts raising money now that it's down to just her and David Scott. There's still a lot to, you know, he's still in the driver's seat. He's still an incumbent. Yeah, he got 47%. She got 30% around, you know, of course, still counting, but still a lot of counting to go, still a lot of counting to go in that race. Um, It'll be interesting to see. That sort of support is nothing to sneeze at in a a multi-candidate race. Um, And I'm just curious from your perspective, I mean, we've written a lot about David Scott and his his sort of close ties. If you ask David, Senator Republican David Perdue, who his closest Democratic ally is, he'll say David Scott. And, And I just... 
uh, is, do you see this race as one of those sort of rebukes of the old-fashioned sort of politicking where there was a lot of compromise, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of compromise and, uh, and, and, and behind-the-scenes power brokers, um, as opposed to the more confrontational, um, you know, push from, from Democrats these days and Republicans, but, but in this case in Democrats, who want a more assertive approach to politics. Do you see Keisha as sort of uh, a candidate who represents I that? think, n- well, no. The dynamics that I saw in District 13 wasn't so much, David Scott, you're too moderate. We want someone who's more progressive. Um, that wasn't necessarily what his opponents were saying. They were saying, David Scott, you are not present enough in our district. You don't do enough for us. We want someone who has better constituent services and is more responsive to the people. Not so, so it wasn't so much an ideological split as it was they believe that he is um, just not fulfilling his duties as a congressman. That was pretty much, you know, they said him declining, for example, to show up and debate them was indicative of him being a somewhat absent congressman who, you know, isn't isn't servicing the people. And that, you know, that's a little bit different than what we see, you know, with some of these other races where incumbents are challenged more because they are seen as too moderate, too willing to work with Republicans. In fact, Keisha Sean Waits said, I'm the best person to replace David Scott because I know how to work with Republicans too. I did it during my tenure as the General Assembly. So none of them were saying, you know, let's let's go super to the left and forget about the Republicans. They were saying, let's get someone in office who's actually going to respond to constituents. That was the line in that race. And I, I and I remember her most in the legislature for doing exactly that. She worked on anti-bullying legislation that, that needed Republican support to pass, and she was the main advocate for that. Um, I want to talk to you about another sort of surprising outcome that you covered closely, too. And it's not a huge surprise, because we all had a lot of, a lot of you know, analysts and insiders had Republican Rich McCormick in the 7th District as the sort of leading candidate. But I think what was surprised is that he, um, you know, at least the Associated Press, called it for him outright victor over a crowded field that included well-known folks who had, who had money behind them. One of them was Senator, State Senator Renee Unterman, the sponsor of the anti-abortion heartbeat bill, who had her own base in Gwinnett County. Well, Rich McCormick came from kind of out of nowhere. Um, on the back of a, he had a president, a tweet from President Trump that, that kind of helped raise his profile, and and it, it probably didn't hurt that he was an emergency room f- physician during a time of pandemic. But still, he comes out and, and wins it outright. It yeah, looks and, like. and Dr. McCormick has an interesting biography that's going to make it very hard to paint him into a corner in the general election. Uh, for example, he graduated from the Morehouse College of Medicine, where his peers. Um, voted him student body president one year. So he has experience in the Marines and the Navy, including tours overseas. Like you said, not just like a veteran, but a veteran with overseas kind of, you know, experience. And so, and even his Republican opponents, um, they all kind of knew he was out front. And so he was attacked by kind of more than not just Unterman was on the attack against McCormick. And they try to say, you're not loyal to President Trump enough and we need a true conservative. Well, yes, McCormick has said, I'm a conservative, but he also kind of signals um, experience working with 
diverse constituencies as a hospital physician and as someone with military service and as someone who attended a diverse medical school that will make him harder to paint in the general election as just this rigid Trump conservative. And maybe that appealed to people in the district, you know, because he did, he raised the most money in the last reporting quarter. He had a long list of endorsements and it just seemed that he really kind of ran away with the race. Yeah. Um, and I agree, like, you know, going going into this, I thought he'd kind of hit the mid 40s and it'd be close, but no cigar. But as of right now, unless there's a dramatic change, he's won it outright. And um, and what could have been a pretty grueling runoff, too, because we, we've written a lot in the AJC about the different attacks leveled against Rainey Unterman and her response to that. Um, but what could have been a pretty grueling attack, uh, runoff looks like Republicans have avoided that. There will also be runoffs that will be pretty grueling in the 9th and 14th districts, um, which you also have closely covered. But those are those are solidly Republican districts that, that won't be up for grabs um, in, in November. But still, you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene in the 14th against John Cowan, a neurosurgeon. Marjorie Taylor Greene um, was a, a candidate for the 6th District up in Atlanta suburbs before she moved over to the 14th District when that race came open. And then in the um, 9th District, you've got State Representative Matt Gertler, uh, who, who's known as Dr. No for all his no votes in the state capitol, who's no, no fan of Speaker Ralston and the Republican establishment. Well, he is the front runner in that race against Andrew Clyde is the one who emerged um, and the Athens gun store owner who I've talked to um, as a, as a sort of gun expert for stories over the years. Um, he has a an Athens store that is kind of shaped like a castle and uh, you go in there and there's, there's just, there's ammo and guns everywhere, but you can't, you can't miss it in the outskirts of Athens because it literally looks like, like a fortress. Um, but he is the one who emerged. I have a really crowded field of, 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 of some big names. Former Congressman Paul Brown was in that race. And so is State Representative Kevin Tanner, who is a, a universally well-liked state lawmaker who is backed by both Nathan Deal and Brian Kemp. So it was no small feat for Andrew Clyde, to, 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 who appears to be in that runoff. Right. That one was more surprising to me just because Andrew Clyde, like you said, didn't have some of the political background as some of the other candidates. You also had State Senator Wilkinson. You had Ethan Underwood, who had never held office before, but he's been very active in GOP politics in one of the counties in that district. So he had a lot of you know institutional knowledge about politics and campaigns. And so folks were thinking he might be in the mix. I think it's going to be interesting. You know, Matt Gertler comes across as the very not only conservative because all the Republicans said they were conservative. But as you know, his reputation is one of somewhat contrarian in the state legislature. He's not the most popular guy, even among fellow even amongst fellow Republicans, he's not the most popular guy. He had that picture with um, Chester Doles, who is a former white supremacist. He's now formed this new group, and he kind of curries favor with candidates. And that has rubbed even some Republicans the wrong way, that Gertler is photographed with this guy and, and did not denounce him. Even U.S. Rep. Doug Collins denounced the guy. So, you know, not everyone is, is going to be super happy with Gertler making the runoff. And that might encourage more folks to see what Clyde, who's, who's pretty much unknown, see what he's talking about. Yeah, it's going to be a uh, that's going to be a fun race to cover. And um, 
And we'll probably have even more, if, if there is no runoff in the Senate race, we'll probably have even more coverage of all those races because we'll just have a little bit more bandwidth between the, me and you um, to, go, to go cover them. If there is a runoff, who knows? But I will say, as we were talking, we had even more results come in um, from the Senate race. And Ossoff is now just shy of the 50% mark. He is at 496 um, so a, a stream of new totals has co- have come in. He has encouraged patience because he says, look, there's as of earlier today, he said there's hundreds of thousands of absentee ballots, mostly from Metro Atlanta, which is his base. Outstanding. Um, so, look, who knows what will happen? But but there still seems like a shot that he could uh, he can emerge tonight. Yeah, it looks like I mean, we're still waiting. Come on, secretary of state. Come on, counties. <laughs> give us some numbers. <laughs> well, in the meantime, follow us on Twitter and on AJC.com and in the blog. And we haven't stopped working for you guys to, t- to, to try to help you understand what the heck is going on in Georgia politics right now. That's right. We're here. Thanks for joining us, Tia. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.